So, um, here's a quote from the Buddha I thought I would start with. It's a beautiful quote about the truth. He said, the gift of truth is the most precious gift. The taste of truth is the sweetest taste. The love of truth is the greatest love. The gift of truth is the most precious gift. The taste of truth is the sweetest taste. And the love of truth is the, is the greatest love. So, um, I, I think this is a great place to start a new year to talk about truth. Because it's essential to our practice. It's essential to the meditation practice. It's essential to the Dharma practice and to the realization of the truth that the Buddha taught about reality. And it's not, you know, limited to Buddhism at all. Gandhi called his autobiography Experiments in Truth. Experiments in Truth. And it's a beautiful concept, the truth, or reality, or realness, or honesty. And in terms of our meditation practice, it can't be done without honesty. It, can't, it, w- it won't work. I can assure you it will not work if, you're not, if you don't learn how to get real with yourself, with reality, with what's here. And, and really, it's one of the beauties of Buddhist meditation and Vipassana, particularly, although it's true of all Buddhist meditation, I believe, um, is that it starts to um, uh, give us or teach us uh, a set of skills and a set of uh, uh, awaken a set of capacities in us so we can be present with what's true. And we don't have to control the truth. We don't have to fix the truth. We don't have to make it a better truth. We don't have to deny the truth. That the awakening happens by starting to pay attention to what's actually here. What, what constitutes reality? And what happens when we pay attention to this experience that's sitting in your seat? And, and really, it's right, it's right here for all of us, for everyone. The truth is sitting right here. And, and the capacity to wake up is the cultivation of mind, mindfulness, heartfulness, bodyfulness, to be present and awake to the living reality of what's here and see what happens as we do that. See what opens up or what unfolds or what gets realized, or made real. <clears throat> in, uh, in Buddhism, there's um, a teaching that I actually love very much. It's called the teaching of the two truths. So I'll talk a little bit tonight. You'll hear me a little bit talking about the Four Noble Truths, and you'll hear me talking about the two truths. And the two truths are the truth of relative and ultimate reality. <coughs> relative reality, ultimate reality. And, when, and I, I le- really learned this originally in, in Zen, from a Zen person. And I loved it because they taught me about relative or conventional reality. 
And then they taught about relative or absolute reality, ultimate reality. And then they added this beautiful teaching. They said, and they're both equally true. They're both equally true. And that's, that's a teaching in and of itself about truth. That, oh, we're not just trying to get to absolute truth. Oh, it's not just about ultimate truth. That's important. But relative truth, conventional truth, that's also important. To learn how to be present and wake up to what's here or what truth is on all the levels of the ways it manifests. And I, I, I wrote this talk originally a long time ago, and I'd been on a retreat with a very esteemed teacher, very esteemed, great teacher actually. Um, um, and, I, and it was right after I'd gotten asked to teach by Jack Cornfield. So I went on this retreat um, with this teacher, and um, I had some questions about emptiness and this and that. And I, I asked one of the teachers on the retreat about it, and she said, oh, no, no, talk to this other teacher. They really know about this. They really know. So I thought, okay, but I was a little nervous about it. And because, you know, why was I nervous? Because I wanted to look good, right, in the teacher's eyes. So I went, I'd been sitting on a retreat, I don't know, four, five, six, seven days, and, and I had an appointment to go see the teacher. And, you know, you don't talk for a couple of days on retreat. It's a little, it's something to start talking, getting into an interview. And I went and I knocked on the door and, uh, and, and I, I saw I was really nervous going in. And I came in and she had me sit down and I had to talk. And, but I didn't, I wasn't honest. I wasn't real. I didn't say, oh, I'm really nervous coming to meet you. You know, I don't know you. You're an esteemed teacher and I want to look good in your eyes. I didn't, I didn't say that. Like, that would be too truthful at that point. Now I can do that. I can tell you that now. You know, it's easy. But then it was harder. And, uh, and she asked me some questions and I started to say something about emptiness and this and that. And finally she looked at me and said, well, why don't you, you should just go back to your room and sit some more. Oh. Yeah, right. That, she's a good teacher. That taught me a lot. Because, first of all, that's funny. <laughs> I'll be honest, part of me was destroyed, right? I was like, oh, shit, you know. Look, I made, I made a fool out of myself, or I didn't do it well, or she didn't think I knew anything, or whatever. And I went back to my room and sat, and I sat with that experience of feeling embarrassed, or humiliated, or humbled, or all. And it was great, because I melted. And this is, you know, this, some wild stuff happens sometimes on retreats. Really, I, the experience was, I just melted, and I turned into a little puddle of water for a while. But I'm a good yogi, I know how to practice, so you just be present with the puddle of water, you know? So your body's gone, doesn't matter. And then... <laughs> And then, and I sat with it, and I, and I could see, oh, I wanted to go home. Really, I just wanted to leave. I was embarrassed. I felt bad. I'm a puddle of water. But I just sat with it, sat with the experience. And then, and after a while, when I say a while, I mean most of the day, 
you know, I did some sitting, walking, sitting, walking, but I, I was, I was metabolizing what happened. And, you know, by the evening, I felt like, oh, I, at least, here's what, really what I felt. I felt like, well, I know I could stay the night and sleep, and if I have to get up and leave tomorrow morning, I will. Right? You know, I didn't give a shit anymore. I would just go. And, um, and it was great because I sat with something that's not easy to sit with that's difficult, a certain kind of identity that I wanted, a certain kind of way I wanted to be seen and be known. And that was dying in that moment. That was that was releasing in its dukkha way, in its painful way, its suffering. It was a certain kind of suffering. But I wasn't bound by the suffering of turning away from it, of not being honest with it, of not being real with it. That suffering I'd let go of so I could stay present and be truthful about what was happening and let the truth begin to awaken me a little bit. Dogen, Zen Master Dogen, he said, those who seek the easy way do not seek the true way. Those who seek the easy way do not seek the true way. And it's beautiful that there are teachers willing to say that, what Dogen said. Because we could tell you, and certain people will tell, oh, I have the meditation practice, it's great, you'll feel great, you'll be relaxed, you'll be fine, you won't have any more problems, and I'll sell it to you very cheaply. I can do that. And I can do that. I would do that. If you're going to pay the money, I'll sell you something. <laughs> you know, but, but it's much richer to get a, be offered a practice and a teaching that says, oh, reality. Reality is where you can wake up. The truth is where you can wake up. The way things are is where you can realize the depth of truth or the ultimate truth. The conventional truth is a doorway to the ultimate truth. It's not a mistake. It's not a problem. It's not wrong. It's the gateway to liberation, to freedom. And it's why compassion is a, such an important part of meditative practice, of the Dharma. Because if you want to practice, if you want to wake up, if you want to discover what's really sitting in your seat, you'll deal with some difficulty. You'll deal with suffering. It's part of the human cosmology. It's part of the human experience. Anybody, anybody not know that? Right? Is that clear enough for everybody? Now, I want to be clearer about it because the Buddha didn't say, oh, life is suffering or everything is suffering. He said there is suffering. That's the first noble truth. And really, he said, and another way you could translate it is that it's the first ennobling truth. It's the first truth that brings us to our nobility, to the potential of what's sitting here and who and what we are. And it's not a bad thing. It's not a wrong thing. It's not a mistake. 
somehow that's how reality got set up. If you're a human being, you will have suffering, you will have difficulty, you will have problems, you will have, you know, you'll have a backache, you'll have whatever, you know. Remember the range of dukkha, and for you new people, the word dukkha is generally translated as suffering. It's a much broader term. It means suffering, disease, discomfort, a lot of a lot more subtle meanings. It means, you know, you ate too much, that can be a kind of dukkha, or you don't have enough food is a kind of dukkha, or you have to take a, a leak and the teacher's still talking, that's a kind of dukkha. Or the teacher goes on and on for three hours could be a kind of dukkha. Believe me, I sat through that. And you know, it has its blessings and its suffering to it. So so the first noble truth has to do with the dukkha and, and understanding that the easy way is not, maybe, might not be the true way. That the true way is through what's here. What, what, what's sitting in your seat can lead to the, the greatest freedom, to, to what the Buddha discovered that has motivated us that puts us here right now, right? Because the Buddha went through plenty of human suffering. And all of his followers, who in many different countries, in many different cultures, who came from many different religions, who have been practicing seriously for the last 2,600 years, have kept this tradition alive because it was real, because it worked, because it offered the potential to discover reality and the beauty and the freedom of reality, not by denying reality, but by opening to the truth of reality. And so, originally the Buddha had people, um, he set up a, a renunciate tradition, the monastic tradition. And a lot of people have practiced as nuns or monks. And then there was also the, the lay tradition. So was, I forget the phrase, the fourfold something, the fourfold tradition of monks, nuns, lay women, laymen. And, and that became the Sangha of the Buddha. And, and um, renunciation is not very popular among lay people, right? Meaning we want, really what we want is we want uh, to be liberated and have all the goodies too. Like that, you know, and that's fair. I, I appreciate that. I like, I like all the pleasures of human life. They're great. They may not be what really satisfy us ultimately. There may be some um, value in the truth of renunciation, which I don't mean, oh, you all have to go be monks and nuns. But in learning how to really choose wisely in what we're going to do, how we're going to engage our life, and what's important or what's in value for us as human beings and for all of humanity in general. So this is from Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's a friend who I, I like very much. He's one of the foremost translators of the Pali Canon into English. He said, the tool that the Buddha holds out to free the mind from desire is understanding. Right? Like, 
a lot of people think, oh, if you have desire, it's a bad thing. Anybody not have desire, right? Let's be honest, right? But but what happens when we begin to understand desire? The tool the Buddha holds out to free the heart and mind from desire's understanding. Real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up things still inwardly cherished. It's funny on the computer, excuse me, but I can't get my, I just lost the whole thing. Oh. <laughs> okay, there it is. Um, real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up things still inwardly cherished, but of changing our perspective or shifting our perspective on them so that they no longer bind us so we're no longer bound by them, attached to them, identified with them. We start to see a bigger picture. Now, I'm, I'm adding a little commentary on Bhikkhu Bodhi here. Here's Bhikkhu Bodhi again. He says, when we understand the nature of desire, when we investigate closely with keen attention, desire falls away by itself. When we understand the nature of desire, when we investigate closely with keen attention, desire can fall away by itself. In this investigation, our concern must not be with what is pleasant, but with what is true. Not with what is pleasant, but with what is true. We have to be prepared and willing to discover what is true, even at the cost of our comfort. Real security, real security, true security always lies on the side of truth, not on the side of comfort. We have a young friend who's dealing with uh, not being comfortable right now. And it's so beautiful to have a baby because they're so uninhibited about their reaction to reality, right? So if I don't have the comfort, I'm going to scream, right? And, and they don't, it's not a thought, it's the automatic response. And, and it's fine to get a little bit more mature and adult and so you don't get exactly what you want, you don't scream. But to deny the feeling is to deny the doorway to start to wake up and learn more, to understand more about the truth of the desire and what happens for you. The baby is totally in the desire. And it's appropriate for a baby. It would be a mistake to say, oh, I'm not going to feed you, I'm not going to change you, I'm not going to cuddle you, because it's just desire. <laughs> That's a misunderstanding of practice. So the Four Noble Truths, right? And I'll just say that. It's the truth of suffering, the truth that there's a cause to suffering, the truth that there can be the cessation of suffering, and the truth that is a path or skillful means that lead to the freedom from suffering. And again from Bhikkhu Bodhi, he said, the essence of the Buddhist teaching can be summed up in, the, in two principles, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path. And of course, and just so you're clear, if you don't know this, the, third, the fourth truth is the Eightfold Noble Path, right? 
So, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path. The first covers the side of doctrine. The Four Noble Truths covers the side of doctrine and responds, and primarily responds, response, the response it elicits is understanding. It's an understanding of how reality works. And when we're talking about reality, we're not talking about something away from you. We're talking about you. You are reality. Your experience is reality. This is where freedom is discovered. I mean, you can read the books or all the teachings of the polycanic. Great. They're all pointing at the human experience, saying, pay attention to this experience. This is where freedom is found, in this human experience. And so Bhikkhu Bodhi says the first covers the side of doctrine and the primary response it elicits is understanding. The second, the Eightfold Noble Path, um, um, the second covers the side of discipline in the broadest sense of the word. And the primary response it calls for is practice. And so it's a living art, Dharma. Dharma is a living art. It's both a, 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 a heart-mind realization art, and it's a living art of practice, of living, putting the practice into life, applying the principles of practice, of right understanding, of right attention, of right concentration, of right mindfulness, of right effort, etc., right speech, and right vocation, etc., etc. It, uh, uh, it means to, um, to take the principles that are valued and then apply them now, right now, paying attention to what's happening for you, even, even as you're listening to the content of what I'm saying paying attention to your body, paying, paying attention to your heart, paying attention to your mind, and how the teachings are getting digested or metabolized even as you're sitting here. And it doesn't mean, oh, you have to like them or love them, because liking them or love them are only one half of what happens. Not liking them, not loving them, that's also part of what happens. We want to understand it all. That's radical. That's part of the radicalness of Buddha's teaching. Is he says, oh, this human experience is understandable. Not only understandable, can lead to freedom. This human experience that you have, that you're sitting with, that even has your doubts, is part of what leads to freedom. And it's why doubt, and we've been talking about the five hindrances in the last number of weeks, and of course, doubt is one of the great hindrances and an important hindrance to learn how to practice with. Not get rid of, not deny, but see, oh, how do you use that as part of practice? Okay, let me figure out how to work this computer. So, yeah. So, the Four Noble Truths. And learning how to wake up learning what waking up is, or where it can happen, or how it happens, or what it's like. And nobody's going to explain it to you. I mean, we can say a lot of different things, or 
lot of different associations, and I'll tell you a little bit, but really it's something that can only be discovered in reality. Everything else is pointing at reality. This finger, you know, is very famous in Zen, especially in Japanese Buddhism, the finger pointing at the moon. It's a really great teaching, right? The finger pointing at the moon. Don't look at the finger. Look at the moon. That's what's being pointed at. And so, you know, there's a lot of um, study that's good. There's a lot of teachings that are good. There's a lot. But really what's being pointed at is you, is your practice, is what's sitting in your seat, the consciousness, the aliveness, the confusion, the misunderstanding, the potential that we intuit of what's possible for us as human beings and what the Buddha pointed at. He said, if greed, anger, and delusion are given up, are released, one aims neither at one's own ruin nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both. And one experiences no mental pain and grief. Thus is Nibbana visible in this life, immediate, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. So he's just one of the, he gets a little poetic description of nibbana, of freedom. And he says that nibbana is visible in this life, immediate, inviting, attractive. He's saying it's not so far away. We think it's far away. We think, oh no, not me. How many people here think they're going to get enlightened? Let me see. Okay, we got a couple people who are willing to raise their hand. Okay. What? The question is, how many people here think they're going to get enlightened? Yeah. What? Why not? Okay, I heard you. I'm trying to hear him. (laughs) It's possible. It's possible, but you think you're going to get enlightened? Okay, you don't know. That's a fair answer. I'm just asking. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if you're going to get enlightened. But, But what I'm saying is mostly... That's not how we go into practice. That's not how we live our life. We don't think, oh, the Buddha taught this, I'm going to do it. No, we think, oh, yeah, maybe I'll do a little bit. I'll come on Sunday night. That'll be good. I'll calm down a little. I won't be. And, and that's all good, all good reasons to come, calm down or not be so angry or be a little happier, all good. But really, I'm just pointing to the what the Buddha pointed at, which is nirvana or nirvana. So the truth, the truth is part of the practice, part of it in many levels, many ways. It's one of the paramis or perfections of the Buddha is truth or truthfulness. <coughs> and it's one of the precepts, meaning it's part of the moral fabric of Buddhism which says be real, be truthful, be honest and see what happens see what happens when you're not honest, when you lie when you distort the truth when you pretend why Why are you doing that? who do you think you are? what do you think, why do you think what, what's it going to benefit for you? what are you going to get by not being real not being honest 
And so, and so right speech is one of the important precepts and practices of all Buddhists. Right speech, meaning true speech or honest speech. And what's beautiful about it is it's not just about speech. It's a reflection of a deeper understanding of truth. And here, again, from my friend Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's coming back here, by the way. I've been emailing with him. Next time he's in town, which we don't have dates yet, he's going to come and teach here at least one Sunday night, maybe a day long. And, and I encourage all of you to come when Bhikkhu Bodhi's around. Good, good guy, good teacher. So, he says, truthful speech provides, in the sphere of interpersonal communication, a parallel to wisdom. Truthful speech provides, in the sphere of interpersonal communication, a parallel to wisdom in the sphere of private understanding. The two are respectively the outward and the inward commitment to what is real. Wisdom consists in the realization of truth. And truth is not just a verbal proposition, but the nature of things as they are. So now you're getting a deeper level of understanding of truth. It's not just about right or wrong or saying the true thing, but they're saying, saying something else. The two are respectively the outward and inward commitment to what is real. Wisdom consists in the realization of truth, and truth is not just a verbal proposition, but the nature of things as they are. To realize truth, our whole being has to be brought into accord with actuality, with the way things are. This is Dharma practice. This is what your meditation practice is, as we start to pay attention to the human experience and in a refined way, we start to bring our whole being into accord with actuality, with things as they are. Truthful speech, and so again, I'm adding out a little to Bhikkhu Bodhi there, but I'm just going to do that when I do it. Uh, and then he continues, truthful speech establishes a correspondence between, the, between our own inner being and the real nature of phenomena. Truthful speech establishes a correspondence between our own inner being and the real nature of phenomena, allowing wisdom to rise up and fathom tr tr their real nature. And he, he does a funny thing with the language there, but because he doesn't want to reify things. But So he's saying that, that what happens when we see the correspondence between speech and our inner being the real nature and the real nature of phenomena allowing wisdom to rise up and fathom their real nature. Thus, more than an ethical principle, devotion to truthful speech is a matter of taking our stand on reality rather than on illusion. Taking our stand on reality rather than illusion. On the truth grasped by wisdom rather than the fantasies woven by confusion. So you start to hear a little more the depth of Dharma with even something as simple and as common as right speech, which is a beautiful practice. 
How many people here never tell a lie? <laughs> really? <laughs> you know, and, and I'm not saying you should not tell lies, but it's just, again, what I said before is what I'm saying. Like, pay attention to when you're not truthful. Why? What's going on there? What are you believing? And is that wise? Is it true? Is it wise? Because sometimes it's actually skillful not to tell the truth. It's the wrong time or the wrong place. And this is actually woven into Buddhist teachings on right speech. Sometimes it's the wrong time. If, you know, if you... Um, I, I'll give a poor example, but a little example. You know, if the if the police are coming to look for your friend and you're hiding your friend in the house and the police come and say, oh, is he here? And you say, yes, he is. You know, go take him. That might not be right speech, especially since your friend never did anything wrong and the police are after him because of some fantasy that was created, like some prejudice or something like that. So sometimes it might not be the right thing to say the truth. Or it just might be, you know, even telling your partner the truth about how you're feeling about them. It might not be the right time to say <laughs> You know, there are times when, you know, they're having stress and they're having difficulty or they're sick. Not a great time to tell them. You can tell them when they're feeling better. <laughs> and that's part of skillfulness of being more awake to the total truth, to a bigger picture of truth. And then, as I said, I want to say just a couple of things about the two truths, relative and ultimate reality. And I'll read you a poem, a poem that I love from Nagarjuna. He says, The Dharma taught by Buddhas hinges on two truths. The Dharma taught by Buddhas hinges on two truths, partial truths of the world and truths which are sublime. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. So there are partial truths of the world and truths which are sublime. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. Without relying on conventions, you cannot disclose the sublime. Without relying on conventions, you cannot disclose the sublime. Without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. The Dharma taught by Buddhas hinges on two truths, partial truths of the world and truths which are sublime. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. Without relying on conventions, you cannot disclose the sublime. Without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. Beautiful, beautiful poem, beautiful teaching about the two truths and the interrelationship of all of reality from its most ordinary to its most sublime or its most divine or its most holy. And I love that teaching in Buddhism about the two truths because it doesn't set up the sublime or the holy, oh, it's outside. No, the conventional is the doorway to the numinous, to the holy, to realization. Thich Nhat Hanh said it 
also a little differently, he said, we shouldn't allow relative truth to imprison us and keep us from touching absolute truth. Looking deeply into relative truth, we penetrate the absolute. Relative and absolute truths inter-embrace. Both have value. And that's a beautiful understanding of why Dharma practice is so rich. All we're doing is sitting down, right? We sit down and we stop and we pay attention to what's here, to the conventional. And this leads to the depth of human reality because it's already sitting right here. It's not separate. I, I don't know why I have this, but I have a quote from John Cage, who I, I love John Cage, musician, poet, philosopher. He said, I am trying to become unfamiliar with what I am doing. <laughs> He's pointing at something about the two truths. I am trying to become unfamiliar with what I am doing. We're, we want to become familiar with what's here and also see how much we don't know yet. How much is a mystery or a majesty that's already here? <clears throat> so I have two different quotes. I could end with either one of them. I don't know. What do you want? <laughs> Both? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I'll, I'll do the more personal one, which I've read before. It's from my friend Ginny Morgan, who I was teaching a retreat in uh, Kansas, where Ginny lived, and um, and um, we had some serious weather there. Actually, it might have been. It wasn't my first time teaching. I taught there a number of times, and um, uh, I remember one time being there in the winter and the snow's going sideways. You know what that's like? That, you know that's serious weather. That's a certain kind of uh, uh, winter dukkha. And, um, and she had brought a friend of hers, Ram Jyoti, there for her first meditation retreat. And Ram Jyoti was a Hindu practitioner from Florida. And she wrote me a letter after the retreat. She said, Dear Eugene, Ram Jyoti and I got stuck in a long line of traffic on Highway 71, revisited. We waited patiently while a snowdrift the size of an 18-wheeler was cleared off the road. What was lovely and quietly appreciated by both of us was that even though we knew that Ramjoki would miss her plane, it was all just fine. At, on the road to the airport, after the drift was clear, the car hit a patch of ice in the road. In a long, quiet moment, it began to turn sideways. In a long, quiet moment, it began to turn sideways. I said, shit. <laughs> Ram Jyoti said, Ram. We both use the same tone of voice. There is no side of the duality that is better than the other. The car righted itself and we went on. We are truly just drops of dew trembling on the tip of a leaf. Let's sit for a minute.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.